We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back once again. Hi. How are you doing, Courtney? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, even better for having just had a really fascinating conversation um, with Rowan Borschman. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, just before we get into the episode, this is one where we might need to put a a slight warning in front of it because it does cover uh, sensitive topics about self-harm and suicide. So if um, those topics... uh, cause any form of distress probably not the best one to listen to yeah but for everyone else please do listen (laughs) yeah i mean obviously it's a it's not a happy area but it's very interesting work and very important work Mm. because obviously we need to acknowledge that it that it happens and and try and work out how we can prevent it and reduce the risk of it happening exactly yeah amongst people who are at risk that's right Um, but yeah interesting chat obviously we'll have a chat uh, you'll you'll hear our conversation in more detail with Rowan, but um, really interesting guy. Really interesting to hear his journey through psychology and then yeah. into this specific area. Absolutely. Yeah, but we'll let you listen to Rowan tell you a bit more. Enjoy. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so welcome Dr. Ron Borschman. Actually, Associate Professor Ron Borschman is, is now, isn't it? It is, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so used to calling Thank you doctor. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Ron, th- thanks for joining us. And, uh, yeah, the way we normally do this is for anyone that doesn't know you, just to get you to give us a bit of background about yourself, education and past work and current work you're involved in. Sure. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Rowan Borschman. I'm a psychologist by training and uh, a senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne. In terms of um, history, uh, I did a PhD in psychiatry from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London um, in the UK with Professor Paul Moran, which finished about seven or eight years ago. And that was on um, a randomised trial of crisis plans for people who self-harm with borderline personality disorder. Um, Prior to that, I did my clinical training um, in psychology up at JCU in Cairns, the the clinical doctorate. And before that, I did a postgraduate degree in psychology and undergrad degree in psychology as well. So a bit of a theme developing through the years. I think you're in good company there because that's important. (laughs) Yeah, I did an undergrad of psychology and honours as well. So Excellent. Understand that bit of pain. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yes. What what was your interest in psychology? Were you looking to to practice as a clinician or was it just something you were interested in? It's quite funny, actually, when I was having to choose an undergrad degree, obviously you're in year 12 and I'd never studied psychology. And for some reason, we needed uh, maths to get into psychology, but we didn't need psychology to get into psychology. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I, I took a gamble at uni having never studied psychology. I just, um, you know, the course was called behavioral science and I was always really interested in sort of observing people's behavior. So I thought that could be a, a bit of a go up. Um, so I took a punt and really enjoyed it and sort of never looked back from there. And I did intend to be a clinician, a full-time clinician. When I was doing my clinical training, I thought this is sort of a, a great job for me. Didn't really have too much of an interest in research back then. This was sort of 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through a series of geographical life moves, I ended up um, in London and wasn't registered over there as a psychologist. So I thought I'll quote unquote, just work in research for a couple of years <laughs> and then thought I'll go back to being a clinician in Australia when I return. And life happened did a PhD, got married, had kids, all those things that I hadn't intended to do when I went overseas. And now I consider myself a full-time researcher with one day a week of clinical work on the side. Mm. How do you find clinical work? Like what kind of um, patients do you typically deal with? So I deal mostly with adults, um, sort of from about 16 up, I guess. Um, And most of the people that I work with are experiencing things like depression and anxiety and um, difficulties with relationships or work or um, because I'm only working one day a week, I don't have the resources to sort of work with like intensely with people who need, you know, medication management or experience acute psychosis or anything. So 
a lot of the people that I see are um, not to downplay it, but they're not the they're not the, the sort of urgent end of care. They're more like the ongoing, you know, check in once a week or once a fortnight for some talking therapy type clients. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What what sort of problems do they usually present with, Ron? Well, I guess that's I mean, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> a lot of relationship problems and a lot of work problems. Um, but also because I'm, I think I'm one of the rare psychologists who doesn't mind writing reports, I get a lot of the sort of court-type um, work where people are having, uh, you know, work cover claims or um, they might be looking at some legal action against employers and things like that. So I guess there's always a bit of that um, in the mix. But I'm really limited. I only see about probably four people a week because I just don't have the, the capacity to do much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, research just take it over. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And ju- ju- I've always uh, I've kind of thought that I knew the distinction. Obviously, psychiatry and psychology are related, but um, the way they're practiced is a bit different. Do you just want to give us a bit of insight? You mentioned medication management there, and that's an area you don't really have time to sort of... Um, sure. Well, I, I guess I guess when I mentioned medication management, I didn't mean that I would be um, prescribing medication, which I can't do uh, as a psychologist at the moment. So psychiatrists are medically trained doctors that have been specialised in psychiatry and mental health obviously for sort of another four five six seven years so they can prescribe medication psychologists typically study uh, you know an undergrad and then a postgraduate degree in psychology so they're more as a stereotype they're sort of more engaged around talking therapy than medication management mm-hmm. um, and i think if you were to look at the pay packets of psychologists and psychiatrists you'd probably also see a bit of a difference yeah you know, unfortunately definitely. for me <laughs> and, do, and do they so, do they tend to work together uh, to treat individual patients um, i'm sure they do in my particular i work for a uh, an organization of psychologists where we've got about 25 psychologists and pretty much everyone's part-time and each person has a different specialty and a different interest and different experience so with mine in particular i don't work directly with any psychiatrist but quite often the people that i see will also have a treating psychiatrist who take care of you know tweaking medication or suggesting changes so that's the kind mm-hmm. of thing that i mentioned i don't have the you know, they might need an hour within the ne- uh, a response within the next few hours or the next twenty four hours, and quite often I can't do that. So yeah, okay. Now we're going to get on to your your research mm-hmm. career and your research interests. Now, uh, largely, we, um, you seem to be focused on self harm, suicide, that sort of area. Is that something that you've done in practice as well? A little not, bit. Not practicing suicide. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> that was no. A bit yeah. <laughs> No, um, I mean, I've got a little bit of experience with clients uh, who engage in that kind of behaviour, um, but also because, I mean, my PhD was on people with personality disorder and, and every single one of the people in my study was engaging in self-harm because that was one of the inclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and people with borderline PD in particular can have somewhat chaotic lives. And so uh, obviously they don't all have chaotic lives, but they can sort of drift in and out of crises relatively short notice so in my clinical work uh, especially these days like i said that's the kind of client that i also don't really have the um the immediate um time availability for if there's a crisis Mm. so when i'm working with people who have got a history of self-harm it's quite often people that it's sort of a long way in their rear vision mirror if that makes sense and um, i don't have i don't have too much current um, experience with people who are experiencing self-harm and suicidal ideation i guess i've got some clients that do go through that but um typically at the lesser severe end mm-hmm. yeah so um phd is on borderline personality disorder and and self-harm and things like that um what is borderline personality disorder so borderline personality disorder is uh, a pervasive disorder that uh, effectively impairs the way that people interact with the world or certainly impact the way that people interact with the world so it's a it's a bit of a contentious disorder in many um, circles because it's it can be very heterogeneous Mm -hmm. so there are nine criteria nine um, diagnostic criteria and according to the dsm-5 if you meet any five of those then you qualify for the disorder so you know for example if craig and i both had um, this disorder Craig might have um, symptoms one, two, three, four, and five, and I would have five, six, seven, eight, nine. So they're almost completely separate um, criteria, but mm. we have the same diagnosis. So mm-hmm. you can get a really wide range of people that have effectively the same label. And it's also a bit of a, 
it has a bit of a stigma around it because it's often been deemed as a either difficult or impossible to treat disorder. Yeah. And by extension, the people that have the uh, diagnosis can be treated as difficult people or you know, troublemakers in health services and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's very, um, it's a very difficult disorder to, to be associated with, I think, in many ways. And what, what are the strategies for managing that disorder that you're aware of? Well, the gold standard treatment is called DBT, so it's dialectical behaviour therapy. Uh, and that was the treatment that was created by uh, Professor Marsha Linehan, who herself um, has come out as saying she has been given the label of uh, borderline personality disorder herself. Prior to that, I mean, this is sort of 20 years ago, but prior to that, there was really not a lot out there that was effective, some basic cognitive behavioural therapy techniques. Mm-hmm. DBT was kind of born from CBT. But um, DBT is a very intensive, like a resource-intensive um, treatment so it can take a year you can have um, group work individual work you know telephone calls with your therapist in between sessions um, stuff like that so it's it's often not available in a lot of settings and also it's um, it takes a lot for the clinicians to be trained up in that so I'm not trained in that for example it's um, for someone who really wants to spend a career in that in that space mm. and what, um, just a, a brief description what what exactly is involved in DBT? Well, a lot of DBT is really about um, <laughs> putting yourself in other people's shoes and trying to, um, trying to. Th- it's very meta. So thinking about your thinking, thinking about how you interact with people and how they interact with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because self-harm and suicidal ideation is one of the criteria of borderline PD and most people who have the criteria do self-harm or have self-harmed, whereas most people who self-harm haven't necessarily um, been given a label of borderline PD. So. Yeah. Um, but because that's uh, a large part of the disorder, there's also a, a fairly decent proportion of the treatment that's dedicated to addressing that. Mm. So mm. from my understanding that the first part of each session is dedicated to addressing any self-harm that has taken place since the last session. Yeah. Um, I think it was Marsha Linehan herself who said that um, the reason that is because no matter how good the treatment is um treatment don't work treatment won't work on a dead person so you (laughs) have to prevent that behavior before you can do anything else yeah it sounds like um the ability to to feel empathy and kind of be self-aware and Mm. or not put yourself in other people's shoes like you're saying it seems like a a key feature in that disorder doesn't it yeah i mean interpersonal interpersonal difficulties and um sort of unstable sense of self are two of the hallmark criteria of, of borderline PD. So there's potential for people to misinterpret social cues and and then act on that. So if, if you feel as though somebody's wronged you, even if they haven't, you know, your response might be an unhelpful response. And so that will no doubt turn into a bit of a um, cyclical thing. And, you know, if, if people have got 20 years experience of this, this is the way they interact with the world. And um, there can be an element of paranoia in some people with this disorder. So mm. It's very, um, you know, as you can imagine, it's it's often difficult to maintain friendships and maintain relationships mm. if you have this kind of, um, you know, somewhat um, different view of the world than, than most people do. So, yeah, it is very much about understanding that the way that you interpret the world might not necessarily automatically be the correct way. But do you think that um, people who interact with someone with this disorder might take the view that they're just really selfish or... You know, that, that might be a Attention-seeking. Yeah, attention-seeking. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, depending on who's making that assumption, that would, <laughs> yeah. that would mm. definitely be um, a common uh, a common perception. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's there's a bit of a cycle often too when people have borderline PD where um, if you're in a relationship, like a romantic relationship or even a friendship with them, they, will, uh, they, they can at times sort of idolise you and then if you make one wrong move or one perceived slight, <laughs> that's, it. that's it and you're you're literally put to the bottom. So you're ruled out black and white like you're a really great person and then you're just a terrible person. Mm. And that can happen in a, a repetitive cycle. So you can mm. imagine the um, the passion and the un- uncertainty and the st- instability that would go with having a romantic partner mm. like that. And that's, that's a, a bit of a general, um, like a stereotype, but it's certainly true in a lot of cases. Mm. There's a, a classic book for um, people who live with a family member who's got borderline PD and it's called 
I hate you, don't leave me. <laughs> yeah. That really sums up um, yeah. the kind of uh, thought process of, of some people with a disorder. That's interesting. So why, why did you decide for your PhD to, to focus in, in that area? Because um, it seems quite intense. Yes, well, funnily enough, it was all a bit of um, happenstance. So I was uh, working at St George's University of London in the UK and my contract was coming to an end and I was looking for another job and there was one going at um, King's College London, which is the, at the Institute of Psychiatry, and it was on this RCT of crisis plans for people with borderline personality disorder. And I didn't know too much about it at mm -hmm. the time, although I, I did. Um, I had a couple of colleagues who were um, service user researchers. So um, these people all had been given a diagnosis of borderline PD and I was supervising them one day a week and on a project about um, involuntary detention in psychiatric hospitals in London. So I knew a little bit about the disorder and I'd worked mm -hmm. with some people who had the disorder. But this project, the upcoming project, was about self-harm specifically in that disorder. And I'd kind of always been fascinated by that without having ever um, studied it any more than... Um, I worked in a prison and so it was quite common there. Yeah. But um, so I went for the job and got the job and then after about a year, my boss um, suggested that I could probably turn the project into a PhD if I was interested in doing so and, and mm -hmm. so I did. Uh, and by then I was sort of in love with the area. I thought it was great. So I didn't specifically go looking for that for a PhD but I kind of fell into the job, yeah. I fell into the, the PhD through a job. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. never really looked back. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, so one of the... I guess central elements of um, your studies is is that these people tend to have suicidal ideation and, and self-harm behaviours. So naturally a lot of your work's flowed on to investigate those outcomes, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. So, I mean, my current work um, at the moment, I'm a, a principal research fellow in the Justice Health Unit at the University of Melbourne, which is in the, the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Uh, so much of my work at the moment focuses on generating evidence about the health profiles and health outcomes of people who come into contact with the criminal justice system and then using that evidence to try and advocate for change. Um, and self-harm and suicide are both very much overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the work that I do in that space, in the research space, has that kind of suicide prevention lens um, yeah. put on it. And I also, I mean, I used to work at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne um, which I've sort of got an honorary affiliation there now, and, and that was in the Centre for Adolescent Health. And likewise, adolescence is really the time where self-harm becomes the most prominent. Um, it sort of, it usually peaks, the, the prevalence of it usually peaks at around about the age of 16 and then starts to decline. So it's, it's kind of um, traditionally thought of as a, a bit of a teenage issue. <laughs> yeah. And rightly so. Um, but even once it subsides, that doesn't mean that the problems have been solved and I mean, we can talk about that mm. I guess at some stage today yeah so I was going to actually going to continue on just to um, talk about a specific study that I think you're involved with, with looking at the risk profile of adolescents uh, admitted to hospital for suicide behavior in Melbourne um, yes yeah do you want to talk a little bit through that study sure so that was a study that um, so the, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute is based in the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and there's a, a paediatric mental health ward there called the Banksy Award. And so in this particular study, it was just a couple of years ago, we, we conducted a 12-month retrospective audit of all of the admissions to the mental health inpatient unit over a 12-month period. And we found that uh, more than three-quarters, that was 78% of all admissions were due to suicidal behaviour. Jeez. Uh, yeah, okay. And suicidal behaviour can include suicidal thoughts, um, suicide attempts, self-harm thoughts of self-harm, so just anything under that sort of broad umbrella. Um, and that was higher than I was expecting and I think higher than my colleagues were expecting as well. Um, and about half of those, half of all of the people that were admitted during that time were also diagnosed with one or more mental disorders when they were discharged, um, typically depression. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what exactly were you guys looking to investigate there? What did the study look at? Well... We were looking to see what kind of, um, we were essentially looking to quantify, I guess, the prevalence of risk factors for right. self-harm and suicidal behaviour. But also, I mean, if, if it turned out that only one in 10 people were admitted for that reason, 
um, that'd be an interesting finding in itself. So we were surprised that it was such a large proportion. Mm. Um, and I guess, I mean, this, these are for people under the age of 18. So we kind of thought that our findings really reinforced the, um, the importance of finding methods to identify the risk factors and mm-hmm. um, what's the word? Uh, modify the risk factors for mm. that okay. underpin suicidal behaviours so that we can intervene earlier. Yeah. yeah. Do, do we know any of the risk factors for self-harm? Well, there's a lot of risk factors for self-harm. Yeah, I mean, okay. people, people um, self-harm is typically more common in people that are in, in any kind of marginalised group of society. Right. And this is not, um, like, I'll answer your question in a moment, but yeah. you typically see self-harm is higher in the LGBTQIA plus community, for example, mm-hmm. um, no doubt because of a lot of the, the stigma that they've been through in their lives. Um, to, to simplify it, <laughs> um, but people who are in contact with the criminal justice system, people who have substance use problems, people with mental health problems, um, people that might experience racism. So, you know, any time that, and, and this is not a coincidence, any time that someone's in a group that is particularly vulnerable, um, it seems that this unfortunately might be a coping strategy that some people can employ. So risk factors can include... Um, Adverse child experiences, we call mm-hmm. ACEs. So you might have um, parental substance use or parental mm-hmm. incarceration. Even for some people, having your parents divorce can be a, a very traumatic thing, obviously. So um, experiences of depression and anxiety as a young person, difficulties with your peers. I'm sure this is, you know, none of this comes as groundbreaking news, but once you get a few of those risk factors in one person, um, they become more and more likely. Um, to, to perhaps experience self-harm or at least ideation of such. Hmm. And I guess, like, the thing that I find confusing, um, and, it, you know, it's probably because I come from, like, a privileged background and I'm white and all that kind of stuff, um, the, the idea of actually hurting yourself physically, I find it's very, very interesting because there's, there's other ways to, to cope with that. So... With, with any form of trauma or things like that. So why do you think people go to physically hurting themselves rather than maybe exercising or, or, or even like binge eating or, or things like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> self-harm is it's literally the opposite of self-care, isn't it? Yeah. We're kind of hardwired to, to follow as much as possible. Uh, there are lots of people that people, uh, lots of reasons that people might self-harm. Uh, they might be related to the person themselves or to the outside world or mm-hmm. both. But typically, as a very broad statement, um, self-harm is about regulating or managing your emotions. So some people might do it to relieve tension. Right. Um, some people might do it in response to stress. Uh, and others do it to distract themselves from something that might be even worse that's going on in their lives at the moment. So it does serve a purpose for the person yeah. who's doing it. Um, you know, I've actually heard people say, if it wasn't for self-harm, I'd be dead by now, which kind of Jeez. almost goes against what you... That's you know, like so you, rough, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. if you make me stop self-harming, I might kill myself and, and that's a much worse outcome. So, and I guess, you know, as a clinician and as a family member and, and whoever's involved, it's it's risky because every time somebody engages in self-harm, even if they have no intention of dying, um, they might unintentionally do something that's a little bit more severe than they'd intended or make a mistake or, you know, so theoretically someone can die at any time. And Mm. and no doubt that leads to a lot of the stress for family members and partners and, you know, colleagues and everything. Yeah, I I certainly have an aversion to seeing people get injured, let alone doing it to themselves. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Awful, yeah. Yeah, so just to sort of wrap up on that that study, um, what were the key findings that you guys had about the risk profile of adolescents? I know that the the prevalence was really high, um, but yeah, what, what what did you find out about the characteristics of these people? Well, interestingly enough, we found that um, three quarters of the people who had self harm, so I guess that's probably one and a half of the sample, reported a history of sleeping problems, and ah, this okay. is probably a little bit chicken and egg. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you get sleep, you don't feel very well. And if you don't feel very well, you might not sleep and whatnot. So that was something that um, is worth further investigation um, because we certainly weren't expecting that. And that just happened to be a question that was on the intake form that we used for, um, you know, the audit. So, but we also, you know, we found perhaps less surprisingly that um, a lot of the people who had reported self-harm or were there for suicidal ideation 
also had you know history of substance use, prior mental health um, problems, and also interestingly prior uh, physical health hospitalizations before the age of ten. Right. So it's you know it's hard to see a causal link there, but a, a really high proportion had been in hospital for broken bones or things that you might not associate with um, yeah with self harm. So that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so yeah, moving on. Um, you're you're also involved in the Victorian Adolescent Health Cohort Study. Do you just want to describe what that is about? Yeah, sure. This is a really fantastic study. Um, it's led by Professor George Patton, who's a professor of adolescent health at um, the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, so this is a study that's been going since 1992. Um, I feel a bit of an affinity with this study because the participants are the same age as me. So um, they were recruited when they were 15 in 1992 and they've been followed up um, over 11 waves in the preceding and sort of following 28 years. And so um, just this year and last year they completed their 11th wave of follow-up. And it's basically a, a cohort study tracking the health and social development of uh, almost 2,000 Victorians from adolescence to adulthood with, uh, with a focus on mental health. And it came about, so what, what, in a nutshell, the study was um, started when they were almost 15 years old and then they were interviewed every six months for three years until mm-hmm. they were 18 and then they were followed up again at uh, sort of 21, 24, 29, 35 and 42 and um, really asking uh, really detailed questions about their health and their mental health and their social circles um, and basically their health development. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also asked them about self-harm, which I presume is what you're asking yeah. about now. Yeah. yeah. So um, so we found um, my, my old PhD supervisor, Paul Moran, published a study in The Lancet uh, in about 2012 using data from the Victorian Adolescent Health Cohort Study and looked at the natural history of self-harm from the age of 15 to the age of 29. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that during the teenage years, the adolescent years, um, around about 8% of participants reported, self-reported, um, that they had self-harmed at some stage during that period. And it was about 6% of boys and 10% of girls. Okay. And that peaked at around about 16 and then started to drop off. And, and it was a, a, quite a neat curve to about the age of 29 where less than 1% of people reported um, sort of recently self-harming. Okay. Interesting. And did you, did you have the data to look into what was associated with those things happening or stopping, you know, stopping at some stage? Well, yeah, we, interestingly, because it was a, a longitudinal study, after that paper was published, we also um, looked into the data from when they were 35 and we'll soon do so with the 42-year-old data. But um, we found that, um, you know, it sounds like good news that people stop self-harming. But we did a couple of follow-up papers. Um, the first one was also led by Paul Moran. And this one showed that at the age of 29, the, the people who had self-harmed during adolescence were four times as likely as their peers to be um, basically experiencing multiple dependence syndromes. So they might be meeting the criteria for you know, nicotine, alcohol, cannabis dependence. So there is you know, one potential line of thought where someone might think, well, they've stopped doing one thing to self-harm, like they might have stopped cutting, but now they're four times as likely to be um, drinking or smoking or using drugs at a problematic level. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost impossible to prove that there's that link, but some people certainly have that view. Okay. And did you, did you guys measure some of the f- things that might have contributed to that, like life stresses and, and that type of thing that might explain those behaviours? Yes, well... I guess to partially answer that question, we we also followed them up at the age of 35 and we found that um, the people who had self-harmed during adolescence were much less likely to be sort of meeting a lot of those stereotypical life goals like um, being in a serious relationship or owning a home or um, completing uh, adult education like university. And obviously not everyone chooses to go to university or own a home or be in a relationship, but... um, a lot of the, the factors um, like those were were more present in the people who had self-harmed. Um, and so uh, a lot of that kind of washed out statistically once we accounted, once we um, adjusted for various things. But at the age of 35, the only 
thing that was still uh, associated was cannabis use. So they were much more likely to be using cannabis weekly. Mm. And I guess at the age of 35, that's a little bit different to, you know, teenage use. Mm. That's interesting. And so is that, that you say that study's ongoing, right? Yes, absolutely. We, we're still collecting data this year. Okay. And so I'm assuming it's it, it was just the one cohort. And so they're, they're getting to that age where they're in their 40s now. And yes, you're going to be looking to see what happens next. Yes, absolutely. And so it's been what, really good retention. Um, 75% of them are still involved after 28 years. So it's and, a credit to the wow. research team. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. very good. Now, and what, what's uh, has there been mortality? I'm assuming some mortality in that group. There has. It's actually relatively small numbers, um, and certainly, I don't think anything to do um, any meaningful analyses. But um, Professor Patton, who's the lead investigator, has basically teamed up his data with a, a consortium of other similar life course um, cohort studies. And so, by increasing the numbers, we're hoping to look at predictors of preventable mortality in, during adolescence sort of adolescent predictors of you know yeah. death during 20s 30s so, okay and so and so what are, yeah. what are the outcomes of interest now as people move from the, their 40s and into their 50s what how, how do you adapt that? yeah well i guess we're, we're sort of in our early-ish 40s now and so things like eating disorders and self-harm are very much in the the rearview mirror um mm-hmm. starting to look at things like pain chronic pain mm-hmm. Um, you know, overweight and obesity, cardiovascular risk and things like that as we regrettably move into uh, you know, unavoidable middle age. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. It's, it sounds kind of similar to a study that we have over here called the RAIN study that you might be familiar yes. with, which, yes, is a, yes. which is a birth cohort study. Um, do you guys, they've got second and third generation participants now, so, you know, children of the original children and, and grandparents and that sort of thing. Do you guys have any of those types of participants in your cohort? Yes, so... The, the RAIN study is a really great study too. That's one of the cohort studies that's in the consortium that we've um, teamed up with in the past. So the the Victorian Adolescent Health Cohort Study sort of gave birth to the Victorian Intergenerational Health Cohort Study where right. we managed to recruit a 1,000 uh, offspring from the original participants. So we've got this up-and-coming um, cohort of a 1,000 young people and we, we checked in with the mum when they were pregnant and then during the first year of life and then... As the kids are turning eight, we're um, checking in with the kids and the parents again. So it's a, obviously a, an ongoing process because the kids were born over a very long period of time. But in a couple of years, we'll have a complete data set of the, the people who are turning eight. And the, the dream is to interview them again when they're 14 because that means it's a full life cycle. Ah, and then you can see like the, the history of... of- yeah. Psychology-based stuff, yeah. That's yeah, cool. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even some preliminary analysis now showing that, um, you know, parental behaviour during the teenage years is associated with certain outcomes at, at the age of eight, which is just mind-blowing. I love mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's just fascinating to see. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, without disclosing too much, you're a parent yourself, <laughs> so I'm sure you're using, using, myself, those, yeah. using those findings to improve inform your parenting practices that must yes, kind of yes. like freak you out a bit though as well knowing that what you might have done in your teenage years your your kids might do the same yes yeah. well obviously i lived a, um, a sin-free teenage year that's right yeah. Yeah. it's so. on recording now as well yeah, so, yeah. Right. <laughs> no but absolutely it's um it's interesting to see your, your social life your personal life blend over into your work life Mm. Well, that that work is definitely to be followed and, Mm. yeah, be interested to see what comes out of it. Um, So we've actually got a a shopping list of of research that you've done because you're you're very collaborative and you're involved in a lot of things. Um, So another one that you've been working on is the Childhood to Adolescence Transition Study, also in Victoria. Yes, so this is, yeah, that's another really great study that George Patton is also leading. And um, essentially this is a, it's another cohort study, a longitudinal cohort study run out of MCRI. And it's we're basically tracking the so obviously it's called the Childhood to Adolescence Transition Study. So we're really examining the health and emotional development of school kids 
from Melbourne as they make the transition you know, from childhood sort of through adolescence and into adulthood. So mm-hmm. um, back in 2012, we recruited about 1,200 grade three kids and it was supposed to be a, a four-way of study. So every year since then, we've checked in with them about their physical and mental health and their social networks and we've got the NAPLAN scores linked in to see how they do at school and you know, family composition and pubertal development and all sorts of stuff. Um, and we've now actually, through um, extended funding, the kids are in year 12 now, so they're not really kids any, anymore at all, but we've managed to check in with them every year. So we have nine waves of very rich data mm. to look at, um, which is really great. And we've also had their parents and their teachers fill in questionnaires too. So it's quite a globally unique study, it's super rich with data, um, mm. kind of overflowing with data. And what's going to be like the, the main outcome you're looking for using that data? Well, there have been so many outcomes. I mean, because there are so many domains that we've measured, um, there are people like me who are interested in self-harm, but then there's someone else who might be interested in overweight and obesity or somebody else who's interested in bullying or, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there's been a lot of really key findings, but some of them, I think some of the biggest ones are showing that kids who are experiencing um, common mental disorder symptoms, um, they're about a year behind by the time they get to high school academically. Um, and, you know, whether or not that's causal, I suppose, is um, you know, remains to be seen, but probably highly likely. Mm. Um, but we published a paper last year about self-harm, which was, um, as a parent, quite depressing. But we showed that um, using the grade six data, because a lot of the research into self-harm involves adolescents, sort of 15, 16, but there's not a lot out there on young kids. So we showed that um, around 3% of the grade six kids reported self-harming in the past year. Jeez, which, okay. Um, Yes. And how old are they in grade six? 11 and 12. 11, 12, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that is definitely disturbing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, for Especially, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's disturbing at any age, but particularly at that age. Mm. It's, uh, uh, so so yeah. 3%, it was actually 6%, but when we looked into the data, we'd ask them, have you done anything that you knew might hurt you? And some people had written things like, uh, yes, I punched my big brother. So, you know, <laughs> he, he punched we, me back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So we, um, we whittled it down to 3%, which were quite serious, um, you know, unmistakable right. self-harm. And, yeah. and what, what sort of um, mental disorders or symptoms of mental disorder came up in the data? Well, it's essentially anxiety and depression mm. um, and the associated difficulties with your peers that, that can either result from or be a consequence of that. So we were sort of saying in the paper that it's the, the two P's of puberty and peers that were really, um, you know, more present in the, the, the kids who had self-harmed mm. compared to those that hadn't. Um, mm. Do, that do you think that um, the prevalence of depression and anxiety is actually increasing or is it just awareness of the problem? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, it would be so easy to sit on the fence. I suspect yeah. that it's probably, I think it's probably slightly going up, mm-hmm. but I think that also we're definitely more aware of it and the, the stigma is coming down so more people are reaching out for help. So um, I think my serious answer would be probably both without sitting on the fence because I think that's a, they're both partly true. Yeah. Um, does, does, the, yeah. Does, the impact, does the impact of kind of mo- modern technological advances, you know, like social media and whatnot, come into your research at all? Do you guys measure, try and measure that, get a sense of that? Uh, it, that was measured as part of the CAT study and, like I said, there are other researchers who are looking at that in more detail, so not specifically my research. Um, I mean, anecdotally, we know that exposure to social media for long periods of time is typically not good for one's <laughs> mental health um, and when you're, when you're a young kid and you don't have the resources to process that, it can be even worse. Um, but, yeah, I can't, I can't recall the findings of, off the top of my head of CATs, but I know that there was an association with... Um, screen time essentially and, and mental health mm. Mm. yeah it seems like it's going to be a, a real growing and important area moving mm. forward uh, just looking Absolutely. at my, my nieces and nephews and their use of mm. um, you know personal devices and that sort of stuff so much of it i think i got yeah. my first phone when i was in year nine <laughs> ten <laughs> but you know, social media wasn't a thing, so didn't no. I was playing Snake. Like that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very different um, kind of community 
stuff that's Absolutely. happening. I, it's showing my age. I got my first phone when I was about 22. And <laughs> really reluctantly. Yeah. I didn't even want one. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I was overseas yeah. when I got my first one and I was tw- 20, so similar, <laughs> similar age. We, yep. we had the bricks. Yeah up until then um, yeah absolutely yeah now we should probably mention that you're currently on in lockdown in victoria yes oh yes. yeah Again. how's that lockdown, going lockdown number four yeah well you know it's going it's going um, yeah good yes, yes. <laughs> yesterday i was extended by another week it was supposed yeah. to be a seven-day lockdown so now it's currently 14 God. Um, yeah but yeah i mean i think a lot of people are doing it quite tough um mm. you know I, i'm sure there's the whole range of people who aren't bothered at all and then people who are absolutely yeah. in crisis because of it I, I think personally i'm relatively fortunate in that we've got um you know uh i've got a, a, an office that i can work in and the kids are relatively happy to engage in the school work which is good mm-hmm. that's one less um mm-hmm. thing we need to worry about mm-hmm. yeah and and, so. and if, has your work touched on the impact of covid and lockdowns on on self-harm and suicide at all uh it has to the extent that i'm i'm supervising a phd student who's looking at that exact issue mm-hmm. um it's interesting because there's been some sort of paradoxical research come out already to do with covid and, and self-harm and suicide so mm-hmm. there was some evidence uh, some good high quality evidence from the uk and from queensland showing that there hasn't been any impact in on suicide rates since the beginning of the pandemic which okay. might seem to pro- surprising to some people um last year in the middle of 2020 in Melbourne, when it was just chaos, we had a 112-day lockdown. There was a, a 10% rise in self-harm emergency right. department presentations compared to the year before, and that was actually driven by a 33% rise in young people aged under 18. So um, that's quite an alarming statistic if you think of it going up 33%. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got uh, yeah, I'm supervising a really great PhD candidate who's looking at. Um, presentations to the ED for mental health problems since the beginning of, well, since t- the start of 2019. So he's going to be comparing pre-COVID and then immediately post-COVID um, findings, but far too early to look at it to uh, comment on the data yet. Is that whole of population data that they've got there? So all ED usage amongst Victoria? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, amongst certain hospitals. So certain hospitals, okay. He's looking at, it's part of a larger study that's looking at um, Australian New Zealand data from, I think, 16 paediatric emergency departments. So yeah, okay. thousands and thousands and thousands of presentations. Um, already this year, there have been about 2,000 presentations um, at the Royal Children's, where I work. Um, so if you multiply that by... So, you know, several of the big hospitals around the country, there's going to be huge numbers to look at. Mm. There's a lot of speculation amongst people working in that area about the lasting impact of COVID and, um, you know, the effects on the economy and job prospects and education and these sorts of things and whether that might have a uh, an impact later on on self-harm and suicide, you know, in a year or two's time, you know, for people who can't get a job and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, I, I would sort of put the house on it that there'll be increases in in those domains unfortunately over the coming year or so mm. stand to be corrected but um i think i mean you know the pandemic's pre- hit a lot of people pretty hard but um i think for the young people in particular you know if you think about school kids like even high school kids um a lot of them during the past 12 months have been less physically active they've had more screen time poorer sleep poor diets mm. haven't been able to see their friends or get out to concerts or, mm. or parties um, some of them have turned to substance use so all these things are going to have a negative impact on your mental health and i guess that can then put them at increased risk of self-harm and other adverse outcomes that, that remain to be seen do you, do you think any of those things have been considered when decisions get made about you know, plunging states into lockdowns and this sort of thing, you know, does that get weighed up against obviously the trying to prevent people from getting infected with COVID? I feel like it's kind of like yes. a later problem. You know, yeah. we'll do this yeah. now, I'll see what happens later. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to comment, I guess, but I imagine that there would be certain people having some mental health input to the, the discussions. Mm. But um, also I imagine there'd be some hard-nosed people that think, well, you know, uh, better to yeah. get... Better to, um, yeah, avoid COVID and then become mentally unwell than to get COVID. So, uh, yeah, I guess probably kind of difficult for me to say. I'd like to think there would be, Mm. but Mm. don't have any confidence that there has been. 
just as like a side question with the um, emergency hospitalization data that you've you've you're getting or you've got um is it easy to figure out which ones are related to specific kinds of mental health um i'm kind of thinking of the coding because i know that like mental health um hospitalization codes are not great when it comes to specific conditions so yeah i was just wondering whether that's what no, you've so I, I guess we will be limited, and it's, it's certainly far too early to say, but I can, I can say that we will be limited by what's in the, the medical notes. Obviously, they, they use ICD codes to categorise all, all the tendencies, yeah. mm. and sometimes two, three, four, I think up to 20 codes you can mm. use. So we will have access to all of that because we've got, um, as part of a, it's called the PREDICT network, which is a, a consortium of paediatric EDs around Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. we will have access to the data but and yet I, I couldn't even um, say what, what quality it is. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. All right. So I will, do you reckon you'll do some sort of like validity process for that or I don't know? <laughs> In terms of uh, checking how good the data is, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we will to the greatest extent possible. Yeah. I suppose um, part of the project that uh, my PhD student is working on, which is a, a larger project, involves, in addition to looking at the medical notes, we'll actually be creating a sort of nested sample of, of people who oh, attend okay. and then following them up over time. So yeah, I guess cool. we'll have the capacity to ask them personally various questions about their health and their outcomes rather mm. than just relying on the medical notes. Yeah. So that'll be one way to see yeah. How, yeah, awesome. I guess how accurate the notes are. Yeah, yeah cool. our epidemiology branch at Department of Health have a household survey that they do with a sample of the population which is kind of used for that purpose mm. to see how well we're capturing things in um, hospital data and ED data because um, yes. they, they do a more detailed survey to try and get, you know, a sense of what people mm. have got going on health-wise. Yeah, it's always yeah. good to triangulate data sources as much as possible when you can. Yeah. Well, I guess moving on, that segues nicely into talking <laughs> a bit about some of the justice-related work you've done, um, particularly around uh, how accurate uh, people's accounts of their self-harm histories are you know can we when they say that they have or haven't self-harmed how accurate is that mm. yeah well that's a, that's a really good question i guess um, we explored this uh in a in a sample of people who'd been incarcerated um so there's a much larger study called the passport study and now the half study which is led by professor Stuart kinner from uh, the Murdoch children's research institute and the study that you're talking about there, Craig, um, we managed to um, enrol and, and interview uh, 1,325 adults just prior to them being um, released from prison in Queensland and then followed them up um, several times over the next six months. Mm. But the real um, great part of that study was the linked data aspect. So Stuart managed to put together this incredible data set where we could look at their um, emergency department presentations, their ambulance presentations. We had their Medicare data, um, PBS data, notifiable conditions, the National Death Index, um, all sorts of really rich data sources which we, um, Stuart, managed to link to their baseline um, survey data. Mm-hmm. So we can essentially follow the people up um, after they're released from prison and even go back in time before they were interviewed looking at their, their linked data. So one of the Obviously, I've, I'm sort of loving this treasure trove of data that he's got <laughs> relating to self-harm because he did, Stuart did ask um, whether the people had self-harmed. Um, so I guess each person was asked at baseline whether they had a history of self-harm. And obviously, they could say yes or no to that. But whatever they said, we were able to look back in time at their emergency department data, their hospital data, their ambulance data, and their, um, yeah, their hospital admission data to see whether they had self-harmed because that's all coded in the medical records. So... Uh, we could see back in time whether people were being entirely honest when we asked them the question face-to-face. And then we could also look forward in time and see who self-harmed in the future um, and how that compared to their answer. So in a nutshell, um, we found that of all the people who we knew for a fact had a history of self-harm because they had medical records to prove it, only just over a third um, sort of, I don't like to use the word admitted, but only uh, just over a third of the people acknowledged that they had uh, a history of self-harm. Right. So that means that if we were putting resources into trying to help um, respond to this kind of problem, we'd be missing two-thirds of the people that would benefit from that kind of uh, investment. So 
um, that I guess that does show Craig, like you mentioned, it's a nice segue that it shows the importance of um, having more than one data set whenever possible. Mm. Yeah, it's quite startling. Um, it shows the, the the bias that's associated yeah. with survey questions. Quite I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a social desirability bias yeah. at work there, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess that particular client group, you might have people who thought, I know I'm getting out of prison next week, and if I tell them that I've self-harmed and um, are they going to keep me in longer or am I going to be you know which is obviously not true but um, some people might have had that that thought mm-hmm. um, but one of the really interesting things from that particular study was that we were then able to look forward in time after they were released and see whether they'd self-harmed and each person was categorized as either being a, a true positive and that was somebody who said that they had self-harmed mm-hmm. and we had medical records to show that or a false negative which was somebody that said they hadn't self-harmed um, but we had, yeah, we had evidence that they had um, or sort of an unconfirmed positive or an unconfirmed negative. Mm-hmm. And basically the people that said, yes, I have self-harmed and they had medical records to show it, they were six times as likely to engage in future self-harm right. compared to the people who said no and had no medical records to, to show. Mm-hmm. But the really troubling thing was the people that said, no, I've never self-harmed, but they actually had were also four times as likely to engage in future self-harm. So okay. if you're a clinician and you ask somebody, have you got a history of self-harm? They say no, if that's all you've got to go on. That person in our study was four times as likely to go and self-harm in the future, which you wouldn't know about and you wouldn't um, make any uh, attempt to uh, prevent because they've said they've got no history of self-harm, so why would you not believe them? So they were four times as likely as who to self-harm? as the people who said that they had never self-harmed and had no medical records to... Okay. Um, the the real knows. So, and those medical records went back how far, just out of interest? Oh, gosh, they went back from memory three or four years. Okay. okay. Uh, at least. Mm-hmm. I can find that out. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Here we go. So, the, you know, the emergency department data went back a long way, went back seven years. Mm, okay. Oh, wow, and the hospital data went back... <laughs> Nine years. So, no, it wasn't quite a long, um, yeah, quite yeah. a long. Uh, so, you history. could say with quite a bit of confidence that if they didn't have a self harm record in that time period, they probably hadn't. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, they, of course, they might have self harmed and not needed medical treatment, which is quite common. So, yeah. But yeah. It, it was the bulk of people fell into that group of sort of saying no and having no records. Yeah, it's, a, it's mm. our best estimate, these things, because yeah. there's all yeah, limitations in the data. But, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting stuff and very relevant to and useful for people practising and policymakers, yeah. really. It's mm. this, like, sample of people that just almost go under the radar, basically. Like, they're not going to be picked up by clinicians. It's only if they decide to tell someone um, yeah, that absolutely. you can actually do anything about it. So, yeah, it's just, mm. like, a group of people kind of, like, on the sideline just... Under the radar, not being picked up by anyone. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that kind of goes, like, a, a lot of people think that people self-harm to seek attention. Yeah. And in almost all cases, it's the exact opposite. You know, you get people locking themselves away in their bedroom or bathroom and doing it in private mm-hmm. and hoping that they don't sort of get discovered because they don't they don't want to stop, they don't want help with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Just they're very much not seeking system. attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Now, moving on. Also in the justice realm, you, you are leading a project called the Marrick or Marich Project. Um, I don't know what Marrick stands for, but you, you can obviously <laughs> let us know. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. So Marrick stands for Mortality After Release from Incarceration Consortium. Um, and so this is a, yeah, it's a really great study that um, we had funded a few years ago by the NHMRC. Um, and basically, I mean, Craig, as you would know, um, people who experience incarceration often have extremely poor health profiles um, and they they face a dramatically increased risk of of death following release from incarceration. Um, And so, but despite that, we don't actually know enough about the epidemiology of mortality in this population to inform targeted um, evidence-informed policy responses. So, um, some of the reasons that we don't know enough, despite there being big studies, is that um, even though people are at an increased risk of death, death is still a, a statistically rare event, so to speak. So we would need huge studies with a lot of deaths to, in order to be able to do any meaningful analyses, um, and they typically don't exist. So um, 
what we did to get around this was we managed to put together a, a consortium of 29 different studies that have um, examined mortality following release from prison uh, in 11 countries around the world. Um, and each of these cohort leads kindly agreed to take part and to essentially reanalyze their own data according to an analysis plan that we create so that there's no heterogeneity in uh, analysis methods and we can be more confident about the, uh, the findings that we come up with. So we are just in the final stages now of putting together the results section of the, the main headline paper, we called it, we're looking at um, essentially all-cause mortality following release from incarceration. Um, and without giving too much away, I think it's safe to say that people are at an increased risk from the moment they walk out the gate. Uh, and that risk seems to subside over the first few weeks, but there, there seems to be quite a, a pronounced spike in terms of risk of mortality. And, and mm. some of that will presumably be to do with uh, overdose deaths when people go back to using the same amount of uh, substances that they were using before they went in, but they've obviously since developed tolerance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and suicide deaths and um, even homicide deaths. We've got a lot of um, cohorts from North America that are quite large, and so we'll be able to look at gun violence and that yeah. type of thing um, yeah. over the coming years. Mm. No, very interesting. I think I think that is um, largely, you know, there's been some work done into overdose deaths and whatnot here in Australia and, and also in the US, a couple of prominent researchers um, so that's obviously one key area. But, yeah, it's interesting to see if that is the same across c- different countries. I think you said 11 different countries there. Yeah, that's one of the strengths of the consortium, really, is that we'll be able to look at, in addition to looking at demographics like age and gender and um, uh, ethnicity, we can also look at things like country-level factors, you know, whether a country has a parole system, for example, or whether it's high-income versus low-income country. Mm-hmm. Um, things like looking at the incarceration rate across countries might have an impact on, um, um, you know, who's being locked up and therefore how great a risk they're at. Yeah. No, interesting. Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be great to see what uh, what you find in future with that really valuable data set. Yeah, we've got a lot of um, specific plans underway. We've got six papers that we're currently working on, which are all core-specific papers, so looking mm-hmm. at things like suicide and right. things like overdose, things like uh, violence, um, you know, some of the, the main ways that we expect um, mm. people will be dying. So, yeah, I mean, it's very much a, a work in progress, but keep checking in and we'll hopefully have some good results yeah. for you soon. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, we're probably just about at the end of our conversation here. It's been really good to hear about, I think that's the most amount of different research projects that we've ever had anyone discuss in yeah, one podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So you've, set, you've set a record there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, really, really fascinating and uh, really appreciate your time, especially um, as you're sitting there in lockdown, which is obviously not easy. No, no thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a really good conversation, I think. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, I'll include some links for some of the things that you've got going on that people can have a look at if they're interested to find out more. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Ron. Okay. Cheers. And that was our conversation with Ron Borschman. He has done a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of research going on there. So many different topics and areas, um, all within psychology. Yeah, very, yeah. very interesting man. Could quite literally write a book. Yeah, absolutely. Just about his, you know, about the the process of doing those studies that alone the results and the other stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, just the experiences of doing that research would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like he's someone we could probably talk to for hours about all the different stuff that he does. Yeah, um, well, he actually yeah. said to us at the end there when we finished recording that it was just the tip of the iceberg, really, yeah. what, what he was talking about. There's so, so much other work going on as well. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, maybe a future episode. Yeah, 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 yeah that could know? be interesting. Um, yeah, very good. Yeah, particularly interested to hear about that international study with the 11 different countries and yeah. 29 different studies. And obviously that's done to, to try and get as much data as possible to, to be able to um, investigate really rare outcomes. Yeah, relatively it's needed rare. to have that, that large amount of data to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. just overall, just lost for words, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an important topic and can be quite scary to think about, I think, but... 
Yes. So important. If if you want to get in touch with us about this episode or any of the others, you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com. And you can also tweet us at health means what. So please talk to us. We'd love to yeah. hear from everyone. Yeah, it's, this is very much a community-driven podcast, and you know we want to cover topics that people would like to know more about. Yeah, so, so please let, yeah, us, let us know. Let us know. Yeah, and thanks very much for listening, and thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Craig. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.